0: Christ is risen oh thank you so much Uh, thank you for being with us today this is father Ed Hayes a a priest and a teacher and practicer of spirituality and prayer Uh, and and when I say that he's not just someone who talks about it but his life is known as someone who certainly lived that Um, his friends after his death talked about how he taught his followers how to live, not just say prayers. So he had this serious side as a leader and a teacher, as a priest, a leader within his community. He also had a very mischievous side. Uh, At one speaking engagement, they wrote to him and said they would like to have a picture. And so he sent them this self-portrait kind of like some guy like that who can think outside of the box. He had some interesting ways of thinking about God and asking questions. And he even said, is faith more about obtaining answers or about asking questions? So he imagines the question mark as a holy symbol. The exclamation point, he said, is emphatic and insistent. But the question mark is really just a bent over exclamation mark that has bowed its head in humility. And when we aren't afraid to ask questions anymore, it becomes a prayer tool, a way of exploring and discovering. We can say God is love, or we can ask the question, God is love? And open the door for exploring for wonder, for astonishment. Children, children haven't lost their ability to experience holy curiosity. Here are some questions that children have asked about God. If Jesus doesn't have a sister, why do I need to have one? Yeah. Is Santa God's really rich brother? Yeah, maybe we made a mistake somewhere along the way with that one. I like this one. Did Jesus get potty trained as fast as me? Why did God make mosquitoes? All they do is bite. Why would God do that? Did Jesus practice walking on the water? Can I do that? And too often along the way, we lose our holy curiosity, and instead, it's replaced by pride, self confidence chosenness. So I invite you this morning to experience holy curiosity in your life. This week I've been asking, so those people who traveled with Jesus, that walked with Jesus, that that saw the miracles, What did they do after this day? How did they describe it to people they met? What about people who had not heard the story? What about people who were wondering? What about folks who had only heard a little bit of rumor? How did they describe this day? And I'm thinking along that path, we may discover what we can do when we go into the classroom, when we go into the doctor's office, when we go into the grocery store, even this next week and so our direction this morning is is on Acts chapter 10 so here's the story it's about Peter and Peter has been traveling with Jesus been there the whole time Peter's the one who said I'll never leave you and of course turned around and deserted Jesus and there is Peter in a house and he is praying and the setup for all of this is three visions from God a voice from God a coincidence there's a knock on the door and it's some people who want to know about this day, want to know what it really means. And even Peter can put it together. And so he goes to the home of Cornelius, an outsider in many ways, a a Gentile, look around the room, Um, not just a Gentile, he's also working for the military, the Roman military, the occupying force in their world. This is after Peter arrives, meets them, and here is his response. Peter said, I really am learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. Rather, in every nation, whoever worships him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is the message of peace he sent to the Israelites by proclaiming the good news Through Jesus Christ. Mm, That was weak. He is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea. Beginning in Galilee after the baptism, John preached. You know about Jesus of Nazareth whom God anointed with the Holy Spirit and endowed with power. Jesus traveled around doing good and healing everyone oppressed by the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did Both in Judea and in Jerusalem, they killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and allowed him to be seen, not by everyone, but by us. We are witnesses whom God chose beforehand, who ate and drank with him after God raised him from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of God for the people of God. So let's explore with a little holy curiosity this morning, and let's go back. Did you catch that opening line in Peter's sermon? Before he even tells them the story of Jesus, before he gives them, and by the way, this is our first summary to to a Gentile crowd. This is our first record of a sermon. This is very, very important. But before he does that, Peter makes a confession. I really am learning that God doesn't show partiality. After all of those days traveling with Jesus, after all the miracles that he witnessed, after all the teaching that he heard, after being there for the Sermon on the Mount, being there for the Mount of Transfiguration, after all of that, he still didn't see it coming. Still wasn't quite ready to see that for God so loved, the world is bigger than he ever imagined it could be. So ask yourself on this day, what am I learning this Easter? Holy question mark. What is it on this resurrection day Christ would like for me to wrestle with? Uh, to really have to wonder about, to see how deep does that go into who God is and what God is now doing in the world. And and we must be honest, God's people have always struggled with wanting to get it right. The need for certainty, the need for confidence. And too often, that has meant to reassure that I am right, I'm going to attack someone who has a different view, even if they also carry the name of Christ with them. Peter is learning. We see it all the time with young theological students. The first time they arrive at seminary, get a couple of theology classes under the belt, and they are ready to do battle. They are ready to show how much they have learned and how wrong everyone else is, usually the people they grew up with. I've been down that road myself. I love dialogue. I'm past arguing. I invite discussion and learning because I want to learn with you. I'm over condemning and hating. Peter was wrong. Even after all of those journeys, even after witnessing all the miracles, even after all the days with Jesus, and he finally starts to see what God is really doing. Paul the Pharisee, with all the zeal and all the training and all the enthusiasm, was wrong. And there on the Damascus Road, his eyes are opened from the prophet jonah to the opposing religious leaders all gifted with zeal and enthusiasm and a sense of rightness and oughtness and we have it in our heritage oh those baptists those presbyterians those early american slave owners those opposing the civil rights movements how do we cultivate a holy curiosity this easter to say who really is god what is god really doing now in the world and how is god inviting me of all people to be a part of that holy movement there's a lot at stake some of you know the name tim keller Here's one of the ways he describes it. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people. He's talking about the church. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. It is Easter Sunday. So let's lean into the idea of what it means to be Jesus people in a broken, hurt-filled world. Peter's beginning to get it. God shows no partiality. What about me? And what about us? And did you notice how quickly Jesus becomes the key? Jesus is the message. Jesus is the theme. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the Christ after all. May I read to you and remind you, now this is this is one of the earliest summaries we have of this day by someone who was there. You know about Jesus of Nazareth, whom God anointed with the Holy Spirit and endowed with power. Jesus traveled around doing good and healing everyone oppressed by the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and allowed him to be seen, not by everyone, but by us. We are witnesses whom God chose beforehand. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him Receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So here's the big picture, and part of what I think we should be asking today the life of Jesus and his teaching somehow become a threat to the Roman Empire. What did they find so threatening about an unarmed peasant that they would have him publicly executed? Holy curiosity. The rationale for having Jesus arrested and put to death goes something like this. Number one, Jesus is attracting a lot of attention. People are responding to his teaching and they're responding to the miracles that they see and have heard about. So we need to pay attention and be warned. Who knows where this can go? Number two, the people are beginning to believe that he just might be the one the christ thank you the great deliverer number three let's not forget the roaming the romans are watching and they can smell an insurrection coming and if they find out and they get worried they'll come down hard on all of us, they'll destroy the temple, they'll destroy our nation, all that we've worked to preserve. Number four, they're saying he raised a man, Lazarus, from the dead. If these people start connecting the dots, they'll remember what the prophet Ezekiel said. It is written, you shall know that I am God when I open your graves. And some of these people are bound to mistake what must be rumors about Lazarus, that this is the one who's going to restore Israel through Jesus and they will proclaim him to be Christ the Messiah. So, isn't it better to have one person die so the nation doesn't have to suffer? Isn't it better for one man to die than to have everyone else have a difficult time? And there it is, the logic of scapegoating. Destroy one, vilify one, for the sake of preserving the nation or the community or the group. And we see it. We see scapegoating on the elementary school playground. We see it in the high school locker room. We see it at work. We see it in politics. We see it on social media. It even makes its way into the church. Vilify the one to save the many. It's just a a temptation among us humans. The Romans, they're brutal. They're good at it they're powerful. It's better to just let this one die. And the early church is clear. They're going to take that message of scapegoating and run with it. And they're going to transform the logic of scapegoating into the logic of redemption. God will say, yes, it's better to have one man die for the people than the whole nation destroyed. But not in the scapegoating way you've been thinking about. Instead, Jesus isn't going to be the scapegoat. Jesus is going to be the Lamb of God. You have to go back to your Sunday school lessons. You'll have to go back to vacation Bible school or maybe even a Disney video. Remember the Exodus? Remember those people in slavery? And on that night, that first Passover, the Passover lamb is killed. The blood is put on the doorpost and the lintel, And it's there. The Passover lamb protects the enslaved Israelites from death initiates their liberation, their journey into life. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. That's what Peter is learning. How big God's love truly is. Jesus isn't dying just for the nation. He's dying for all the dispersed people of God around the globe then and forevermore. The cross, first century Roman world, maybe it is the worst thing to happen. An instrument of imperial torture and death, the ultimate intimidation for people, a reminder you better not try to rebel, you better not try to undermine us. Can you imagine walking down those roads into the city lined with those crosses, watching people in their agony. And God will transform this thing, the worst of the worst, into an instrument of redemption and life. God will die and put death to death. For Christ is the resurrection and the life. Back to the story of Lazarus. There is Jesus standing there with Mary and with all of the emotion and love and grief in her heart saying, Jesus, if you had just been here, you weren't. If you had just been here, Lazarus would not have died. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm not just the guy that can bring people back to life. I am the resurrection and I am the life that you have been looking for. Matthew Meyer Bolton is a uh, former teacher of students teaching the Bible and teaching theology. and, And in talking about the cross and talking about Easter, he directed my attention to this story. There was a Russian art collector who commissioned Henri Matisse to paint some large canvases to decorate his home. They're, they're going to hang on the large stairwell in his, in his home. And Matisse paints three large canvases for this man, three. And uh, the collector chooses two of them, rejects the third, but chooses two of them. One of them that he hangs in his home uh, explores the theme of music. And the other explores the theme of dance. The third that he rejects is an image of bathers at the river. It is pastoral. It is calming. It is rural. It is is paradise. It explores the theme of being part of God's creation. He takes that one, keeps it. Keeps it. Years later, Matisse returns to that third canvas and decides to remake it. But by then, life has changed. The world has found itself caught up in the Great War, World War I, and the feelings of violence and loss and brutality and fear now prevail. Matisse himself is now being influenced by the style of cubism and so he transforms the image from an exploration and a picturesque way of saying this is paradise to now in the pain and the brutality and the suffering he's going to explore humanity's fall from paradise. He's going to embrace a new style of painting, but he's also going to embrace the images from the creation account in the book of Genesis. And when you look at this piece, it's divided into four clear sections, and you're supposed to read it from left to right, and you begin in the left, and there's still some lushness, and it's green, and it's beautiful, and as you move across to the right, the pastels are gone, and it's just a gray wasteland. The figures who are there from left to right become lonely and haunting until finally the figure on the far right is facing you as you look at the painting. The face is ovoid and there are no features on the face. In the very center of the painting taken from the book of Genesis is a serpent rising out from the ground. And the serpent and the face of the person on the far right facing you are the same color, the color of bone. And the former Blue River is now just this thick black patch right down the middle of the painting pain, loss, suffering. And Jesus will do the opposite of what Matisse did those days. The wasteland and the pain and the suffering of Golgotha will become the place of redemption and hope and Jesus will not dispose of the original canvas Instead, he will remake it into a thing of beauty and hope and reinvent life itself. For on this day, our God rests in rising. Our temptation and our need to scapegoat someone is taken away by the Passover lamb. It is no match for God's love. God's power moving up to this day Jesus captures these images these biblical images from old it's the image of the freedom of these people it's called in the Bible the book of Exodus comes from two words it means the road out the way out it's the highway to freedom it's the celebration of people who are finally going to learn what it means to be made in God's image. And we direct your imagination and your holy curiosity into whom God would love to see you become. The kind of life God would love for you to experience as we walk with him on his mission this day. Peter is clear as he draws to the end of his sermon. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We're talking about the chance to have a different life. To have the canvas of your life remade. Your sins, your pain, your suffering, your hurt, no longer define who you are. So we pray together this morning. Jesus the Christ, thank you for coming for me. Thank you for dying for me. I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need the purpose that you bring in my life. Let's pray. And so Lord, hear our song as we sing words of worship. Hear the words we're afraid to say out loud. Welcome us. Forgive us. And draw us into your life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand as we worship together?